Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Hey, uh, happy Veterans Day weekend. Thank you for coming to church. I know my wife mentioned it a moment ago, but uh, it is always good to see faces in church instead of on Instagram in Tahoe ignoring Jesus. So good to have you in the house of God this morning. Uh, Before we get too far into the message, I do, as she mentioned a moment ago, I want to honor some people in the room and uh, specifically our veterans. I don't know if you realize this, but today is the 100th anniversary of the arms disagreement that ended World War I. And uh, so that's what it started out as a celebration that became Veterans Day. Veterans Day about 20 years later, and uh, every year we get an opportunity on Veterans Day to specifically hone in and thank those that serve our country, that lay down their lives, uh, go away from their families. I know that there's someone here this morning who's been away for months from his family and just got to come back a couple of weeks ago uh, to see his kids. So uh, if you do me a favor, I know that this is weird for some people, but we do want to honor you. If you are past, present military uh, and you've served our country in any way, shape, or form, will you please stand to your feet so that we can honor you this morning? Come on. I want you to give it up for these guys. Thank you, Brad. Hey, good to see you. Come on, a little bit better, a little bit louder. Let's go. Hey. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for coming to church for the first time out here in San Francisco. Good to see you. Awesome. Well, uh, hey, we have been in a uh, series over the last seven weeks uh, entitled Welcome Home, and we've been talking about the values and uh, what God has called us to do here in San Francisco as a church. Uh, But we're going to take a break from that, if we could, this morning. Some of you are like, thank God. I'm sick and tired of talking about the same thing over and over again. Uh, And we're going to uh, talk about the subject of our celebration. It's Veterans Day. So I I thought it would be fun if we took a couple of moments this morning and we talked about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, I want to talk about freedom. I want to talk about freedom. Someone say freedom in your best Braveheart accent. Come on, in that little Irish, like, freedom. Yeah. By the way, um, please don't be distracted by my shirt. Um... Thank you. <laughs> my, daughter, my daughter walked up to me this morning uh, right before church, and she hadn't seen me yet. And she, I hate it when people do this. In it. Please don't do this. This is weird. But apparently she learned it from her mom. Uh, she, uh, she looks me up and down. She goes, she's like, what are you wearing? I'm like, what do you mean what am I wearing? These are clothes. And she's like, I see your ankles. I'm like, okay. She's like, your shoes are too short. Are those girls' shoes? I'm like, okay, Really? She's like, are you wearing sweatpants? I'm like, no, they're dress pants. And she's like, that's a weird combination of clothing. You shouldn't wear it. She's eight years old, but for the love of God. Like, so if you're thrown off by my clothes, I promise I'll dress more appropriate next week. Uh, but today I want to talk to you about freedom. And the reason I am so uh, passionate about the subject of freedom is because the Bible talks so consistently about this subject. It's promised all throughout the Word of God, yet it seems to be one of the most elusive experiences for Christians. It seems to be one of those things that we all desperately want, what we can't seem to lay hold of. Uh, Even during our preview services, before we were ever at church, uh, we spent a week talking about freedom. And it was amazing to see so many people just, not by the message itself, but by the promise of God's word, being affected by the reality that freedom is yours for the taking as a believer if you want it. Like we read about it, we sang about it this morning, we talk about it, uh, yet it seems that all of us don't have enough of it. I think to quote the, the great prophet Tim McGraw, um, I, I like it, I love it, I want more. Thank God, there's not a whole lot of like, country music people in my church, hallelujah. I just gained like 500 points of my wife. I'm immediately more attractive when I talk about country music to her, but I appreciate that the rest of you guys don't like that garbage. Okay, uh, 
Hey, I know how to line dance, okay? I'm a decent human being. Uh, so anyway, we're going to talk about freedom this morning. And I think, uh, not, not, to, not to add too much comedy to this, but um, I think this is something that all of us could agree we could use a little bit more of, right? Like, I think all of us, even as Christ-following people, or maybe you're here today and you're just trying to get a, uh, you know, the lay of the land, do I believe in Jesus, do I, do I even believe in this whole church thing, I think all of us universally could agree, I could use a little bit more freedom in my life. I can't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. Like, I, I yes, even as a pastor, there's some areas in my life where I feel like I just wish I had a little bit more freedom. I wish that I was free to love people without expecting anything in return. I, I wish I was a little more free to give without concern about running out of resource, but just to continue to give and trust that God's going to supply everything that I need. I, I, I want to be able to make some, some mistakes and to fail in this life without failure defining me and making me. Like, I could use a little bit more freedom. But as is my case and probably is yours, there seems to be areas in my life where I just, I just can't quite get the freedom I'm looking for. Yet I know this to be true because I read the Bible and I hear what God's saying, that that freedom is something that is available to us as followers of Jesus. Freedom in a greater measure than what we're experiencing today. Jesus said in his first sermon when he walked onto the scene in Luke chapter 4, he, he, he opened up this scroll to the book of Isaiah and he began to read Isaiah 61. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to set free every captive and to open prison doors for those who've been locked up in prison. And then he closed the book and he said, this scripture is not going to be fulfilled. It's not some future promise. No, it has been fulfilled in your hearing. The fact that I am on this planet, there is a promise that is coming to pass right now. Freedom is available to you in me. Freedom is not some future promise that we get one day in heaven, although thank God that we'll be free of all disease and all famine and everything that this earth, earth has to offer us. But freedom is available to the believer today. Right now, 11-11-2018, there is a greater measure of freedom available to us as we sit in church on a Sunday morning. Can anybody say amen to that? That was a solid two, okay? I'm going to need your help this morning, okay? Listen, it's available to us if we'll just reach out and lay hold of it. And it's not a complicated thing. And, uh, and so this morning, as we, as we talk about this, I want to stir your faith. I want you to believe, no matter what you walked in facing, what you walked in experiencing, that today could be one of those lying in the sand moments where you just step over into a whole new dimension of freedom. Maybe you came in with some addiction. Maybe you came in with some problems. Maybe you came in with this hereditary thing or a sickness or something that's been passed down to you generationally from your family. Today is a day of liberation. We're not just going to celebrate it in the natural. We're going to celebrate it in the spirit today because it's ours for the taking. Amen? So if you're going to take notes, uh, and I highly recommend you do, I heard yesterday that 95% of the people who take notes all go to heaven. So um, just for consideration, uh, if you're going to take notes today, we're going to title this chat, I Have the Answer. Come on, tap the person next to you say, I have the answer. <laughs> Come on, let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, we love you this morning, and I thank you for your house. I thank you for your people. I thank you for your presence. I thank you that as we sit in this room today, um, we, we can believe in faith that you are here among us, walking among us, to do something supernatural with us before we leave this place. Even as we were singing a few moments ago, I pray that those songs would not just be lyrics on a screen, but that they would be our experience today, that we would no longer be slaves to free, fear, that we would be set free. 
And in the house of God, we would leave this place transformed by the power of your word and the power of your spirit on 11-11-2018. In Jesus' name, and everyone said amen. Amen. Uh, my wife and I have, um, have been obsessed over the last decade or so uh, with personality profiling. Uh, we love the idea of like finding out how people are wired and why they think the way they think and why they act the way they act. And maybe you've done some of these tests before, but uh, we've done them all. We've done the DISC tests and we've done 16 personalities and Myers-Briggs and we've, we've studied all of these different personality profiling tests. But about a year ago, my wife stumbled onto something that was introduced to her that has radically changed our home and our, our world and our conversations called uh, the Enneagram. Anyone familiar with the Enneagram here? Okay, yeah, it's sweeping the nation. It's the, all the new sensation. So check it out. But uh, the Enneagram has become probably the greatest conversation my wife has all the time with everybody she meets. And uh, it, it, for a little while, it kind of ruined our marriage. By the way, if you don't know what the Enneagram is, um, it is a, uh, I almost said something. Um, it breaks the entire world into like nine different like personality profiles, and it's, it's relatively accurate, and it dates all the way back to the fourth century. And instead of being like an excuse for you to act a certain way, like, well, this is my personality, you better deal with it. It, it actually allows you the opportunity to figure out, okay, based on the way I'm wired, how do I best talk to other people? How do I best interact with other people and really understand why people are the way that they are? So it, it doesn't give you an excuse, it gives you tools to be a better human being. So it's a great test. By the way, it is the same test that that we take inside our Discover class, and uh, we pair it with a spiritual gifting assessment. So uh, we find out why you're wired the way you're wired and how you can get busy for Jesus. And if you haven't gone there, there's your shameless plug. Go to the Discover class after, uh, after church. But the Enneagram, um, it, it, it became the conversation around my house for months. And I felt like any time we got into a disagreement or an argument, like we weren't talking anymore. She was just psychoanalyzing me based on what she like understood my personality. Now, is this because you're an eight or is this because you're acting in an unhealthy way like a five? And I'm like, I'm about a 10 on the irritated scale right now. That's what's happening. Like, can we just have a normal conversation for the love of Jesus? But uh, if my wife has ever asked you for your number, it's not because she wants to call you after church. She's looking for your Enneagram number. Okay, just, just to be clear. And so after months and months and months of like conversation after conversation, her of all of her friends talking about it all the time, I'm like, okay, fine. I'm going to figure out what all the hype is about with the Enneagram and, and I'll read the book. So I read the book, and oh my goodness, it was life-changing. I highly recommend doing uh, all the research on your own, uh, because I discovered a lot about myself. And I will spare you the details, because apparently my personality likes to talk about itself a lot, and so I don't want to be unhealthy as we're here in church. Um, but as I discovered some things about my life, one of the things I discovered, which really wasn't you know, a secret to me, it's something I already knew, but uh, it was, it's, a, it's a bit painful to admit, um, I have what some might call an addictive personality. Uh, I think, don't laugh at that. Uh, the author in the book put it like this. He said, um, a little too much of something is almost enough. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, I understand that. And this is not, by the way, where I, you know, at eight weeks old as a church, I confess to you my deep, dark sin and tell you that I'm ineligible for ministry because of all of my addictions. Not the case at all. I'm doing okay. Uh, but I will say that there is an area of my life uh, that I am prone to addiction, and maybe we can find some common ground here this morning. I, Tim Biddle, am a dessert-aholic. Is there... Come on, it's a safe place. This is church, okay? We can all admit to this. I... 
love dessert. <laughs> I am convinced and convicted that dessert belongs after every single meal, including breakfast, yes. There's something chemically that happens in me, this urge inside of me. The moment I finish eating, I'm like, you know what I could go for? I'd go for a cookie, go for some ice cream. I'd go for, I'm an equal opportunist when it comes to dessert. Like, it does not matter. Candy, well, it does matter. Uh, fruit and vegetables, those are not desserts, okay? Like, carrot cake is a vegetable. Let's just be clear. It's not a dessert. If you're like, oh, I got you a fruit cup. I'm like, I'm not a toddler. I want dessert for the love of God, okay? But all the other desserts, they, they, they fit into uh, my, my, my little category in my heart. Um, but I seem to have this affection, and, and again, maybe I can find some, some people that would co-sign on this with me. I, I, I to, seem to find a deep affection for cake. I love cake. Come on, just a, a piece of really moist and over-frosted cake. Like, I just love cake. And if cake is in my home... There's a good chance that there is going to be a lot of those little spoon divots in the cake from frequent visits during the day. And after every meal, perhaps in the middle of the afternoon, I will find myself dipping into the cake. Case in point, my daughter had her eighth birthday the other day. I promise this is going somewhere. There'll be a sermon in here somewhere at some point. Um, had her eighth birthday the other day, and she got this marble cake from Susie Cakes in the marina, which is like both the devil and Jesus, like, all together. Like, it's really bad for you, but it's really good. And uh, she, she ate about half of it with her friends for her birthday, and the other half was in the fridge. And so uh, I was finding myself sticking the spoon into the cake over and over and over again. And uh, one night I put her to bed, and I went back into the kitchen after I put my kids to bed to indulge in her cake, although she had warned me that I should not. And she came out of her bedroom as I'm in the fridge... <laughs> with the door opened and the light on me like, you know, I'm being interrogated by the police. Like, and she, she says, I don't see her. She's on the other side of the refrigerator door. And she's like, uh, daddy? And I look at her, you know, chocolate on my face. You ever read that scripture where it's like the dog returns to its vomit, like one man returns to his sin? You ever seen a dog like eat its own vomit? It's like just ashamed as it does it. It's like, I'm so sorry. That's pretty much the face I had at that moment. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, um, go to bed, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I'm eating my daughter's cake. That's my problem. Like, if cake is in the fridge, I am going to go for the cake every single time. Now, you can judge me all you want, because I feel that right now. I see that in some people's eyes as they're looking towards the stage. But here's what I know. Here's what I know about my life, and here's what I know about your life. I think that there is an addict in every single one of us. I think that there are aspects of our lives, things that all of us seem to gravitate towards. And I, I don't mean to cheapen what you're walking through right now. Call it the moth to the flame, the mouse to the cheese, the pastor to the cake. Call it whatever you want to call it. I, I think that there are, there are things that, that try to captivate us and, and, and take our attention and draw us into areas of regret. These momentary indulgences of life that turn into future regrets. The, the, these areas of of bondage, as the Bible might call it. And maybe you've never been able to articulate it, and maybe you haven't been able to find out how to explain it, but perhaps this morning, you and I would echo the sentiment of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 as he writes this in verse 14. He says, The trouble is with me, for I'm all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate, but... 
If I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It's sin in living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I, don't, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God. I love him with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind, and this power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will rescue me from this life that is bound to death? Come on, does that verse not describe the human condition? Does that not describe the struggle that so many of us face? I want to do the right thing, but I just can't seem to do it. I want to do what is good, but I, I never do what's good. Even when I want to do what is good, I inevitably do what is wrong. I keep taking the same lap and doing the same thing over and over and over again. Can I tell you that I think this is one of the greatest frustrations that Christians face? The inability to seemingly break free of some old stuff so that we can do the right thing and serve God. Like this is our plight. This is humanity's struggle. And if you're not careful, and I've seen it a dozen times before, this can take you out as a believer. This struggle to want to do the right thing but always do the wrong thing can cause you to throw up the flag and say, I give up on God. This is impossible. I can never seem to do the right thing. I'm going to just go out and live my life. If you are even considering that today, please listen carefully to what I'm about to say because we have all come to this place of conclusion and query just as Paul did where he said, I am a wretched person. I did it again. I said it again. I've been down this road before. Is there anyone who can rescue me from this life that is bound to death? Do not end at that verse. But look what Paul says in the very next verse. In verse 25, he says, but thank God the answer the answer to my problem, the answer to my struggle, the answer to this situation I find myself in is in Jesus Christ, my Lord. I have the answer. It's in Jesus Christ, my Lord. All right, Ben, come. Let's pray. Like, okay, okay. Like, like is this the moment in kids' church where like, I have the answer? Pick me, pick me, pick me, pick me. Pick me. Timmy, Jesus, good job. Like, what are you talking about, Paul? You can't just throw Jesus at it and it goes away. Like, what are you saying? Now, now, here's what I want to propose. I do not think that Paul is just offering some carte blanche statement to paint over all of this, the garbage that we deal with in a very complex human situation. But rather, I think Paul is saying that Jesus has and is the very solution to whatever area of your life where you need more freedom. And it's specific. It's not general. It's specific. And here's what I want to do. I want to go back into this verse for a few moments. And I want to draw out a couple of thoughts because I think that if we can be convinced of a couple of truths that Paul states in this scripture, if our hearts are convinced of these things, I think that we can draw the exact same conclusion that Paul drew, which is, you know what? Although this might have been what I've experienced, Jesus has set me free. The answer I'm looking for is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, so here's what I think we need to be convinced of. Number one, 
I think if you're going to discover that Jesus has in fact set you free, number one, you need to know that you are not a slave. You are not a slave. We sang about it earlier. I'm no longer a slave. I am not a slave. He, he starts out this whole, like, this whole dramatic verse by saying, the trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. Now, that might sound a bit aggressive for the situation you find yourself in. You're like, okay, I might have a struggle. I got a problem. I got an issue. But slave seems to exaggerate what I'm facing right now. That, that does not seem like the kind of word that we would simply just carte blanche apply to anybody's life. But, but consider what it says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. It says, you are a slave to whatever masters you. You're a slave to whatever masters you. Now, that word masters in the Greek, it is a word picture of a puppeteer. And it's this picture of somebody who would have their hand at the back of a puppet, and the puppet wouldn't be able to move or wouldn't be able to talk until the master said so. And at the master's whim, he can make the puppet do whatever he wants the puppet to do. And can I say this this morning? I think that some of us might find ourselves being puppeted by sin. Puppeted by these areas of life that we so desperately want to break free from, but there goes the string, and there's a, the puppeteer's hand right up our back forcing us to do things we do not want to do. Let's, let's throw some thoughts out there. What about, what about anger? If, if you always respond in the same way, and we have no self-control, but we just lash out in any given situation, you might have a slavery problem on your hands. If that, that sin pattern, that addiction, has been hanging around for a little while, and when nobody else is around, that's immediately where you go to, you, you might have a slavery problem on your hands. If there's areas of your life where you feel like you're not free to do what God has called you to do, you might have a slavery problem on your hands. And here's the sad part. I think that there are far too many people who come to church and lift their hands during worship and believe in Jesus that are still being mastered and puppeted by sin. And they live there for years. And they may even buy into the idea that that's as good as freedom is ever going to get for them. The idea of complete freedom is a pipe dream that is unattainable. And they just settle for bondage. I, I, Robin and I, we used to run these, uh, these things called life change retreats or life change events at, at our old church. And it was kind of a freedom ministry. We did it for about a decade. And we would sit down with people who were 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And I'd have these conversations and pray with these men who for the, the last 50 years have been dealing with the same problem. For 50 years, they'd come to church and they'd sit in the pews and they'd listen to the preaching and sing the songs, but behind the scenes, they were still addicted for 50 years. Behind the scenes, they were still wired the same way for 50 years. And I'm like, why did you go for 50 years? If, if, if what the Bible says is true and freedom is available to us, then we do not have to live half a century in bondage. And listen, if you are here today and there are areas of your life where you feel like you're being puppeted by the enemy and you're doing things you don't want to do, here is the good news. Paul does not just leave you in that situation in verse 24 and say, well, sorry, I understand. It's kind of a rat race right now. One day you're going to go to heaven. It'll be all just fine. No, he says, hey, if you're there right now, I have the answer for your slavery problem. And the answer is in Jesus Christ 
our Lord. Jesus is, in fact, the answer to the slavery problem of every believer. Let me explain. If you go all the way back into the Old Testament and you find yourself in the book of Exodus, I'm going to teach a little bit. Is teaching okay a little bit here? We're going to go a little bit deep for a moment. In the book of Exodus, here's what you'll find. You'll find a long list of laws that God is explaining that the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, had to follow. And there's ceremonial cleansing laws, and there's laws about uh, you know, how you have to come to church and how you have to interact with other people, and what do you do if you, know, you, you kill someone else's animal, and there's all these laws. And smack dab in the middle of those laws is Exodus chapter 21, verse 32. And here's what it says. It says, but if the ox gores a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins and the ox must be stoned. Right there in the middle of this whole list of laws, God tells his people, hey, by the way, if a slave gets hit by an ox, you know, drive by ox or something like that, <laughs> then here's what you got to do. 30 pieces of silver, you can redeem the life of the slave. Jewish culture had placed a value on the life of a slave, and that value was 30 pieces of silver. To redeem the slave cost 30 pieces of silver. Fast forward, almost 1,400 years, give or take a few, Jesus shows up on the scene. He's 33 years old, and all of a sudden, he's got this guy named Judas on his team, little squirrely guy, little sideways, he makes his way over to the religious leaders and he's like, hey, I know you guys have been trying to find a way to kill Jesus. Uh, I want to help you out with that. What will you pay me if I bring Jesus to you? And they go back and they have a conversation. They come out and they, they look at Judas like, oh, okay, Judas, we've come up with a value for this Messiah, for this Jesus. We'll pay you 30 pieces of silver to hand Jesus over to us. If we give you 30 pieces of silver, will you give us the Savior? He's like, yeah, sounds like a good price. And you know the story. As dinner with his disciples, after dinner, goes into the, the garden and he prays with his, his close friends and all of a sudden, here comes Judas, kisses him on the cheek and for 30 pieces of silver, he hands over the Messiah to be crucified for our sins and for our freedom. What am I saying? I'm saying that Jesus was sold out for the very same price as the redemption of a slave. That Jewish law had determined this is what it costs to set somebody free. So Jesus takes upon himself the very position of a slave. No, he was not enslaved at the moment, but he allows himself to be sold out at the cost of slavery. Why? So that every person who would ever call upon his name would no longer have to identify as a slave, but as it says in Romans chapter 8, that they could be called the very sons and daughters of God, that they could be saved and adopted into his family, and they would not have to deal with the implications of slavery any longer. Come on, listen to me today. You are not a slave. A price has been paid for your freedom. You do not have to do what the enemy tries to puppet you doing any longer. You can live in freedom today because the price has already been paid for your redemption. He was sold as a slave so that you could be set free. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Jewish law also stated that once a slave had been redeemed... They could never again be forced back into slavery. 
That once a slave had been paid for, you could never force them to go back to their old way of life. Listen, for those of you who've been following Jesus for a little bit of time, I want to take you back to that moment where you lifted your hand and you said a prayer and you said, Jesus, come into my heart and be my savior and lead me from this day forward. There was something legal that took place in that moment in the spirit. There was a buying back of your soul. And my friend, you cannot be forced. Come on, I'm preaching a lot better than some people in the room are responding today. There has been something in your life that has never taken you back. You've been set free once and for all. You are not a slave. You're a son and you're a daughter of the Most High God. Amen? Thank you. Come on. Quit looking at my ankles. Okay. Number two. (laughs) That's inappropriate. Number two. Paul also makes this statement near the end of of his scripture. And he says, Who's going to rescue me from this life that is bound to death? Number two, you buried death. You buried death. Now, fair warning, um, the sermon's about to take a PG-13 turn here for just a moment. Uh, But I I felt it was appropriate to share what Paul was referring to in this scripture because it carries with it such significant spiritual symbolism. Because Paul begins to make reference to a practice in Roman torture as he makes this statement. What a wretched person I am. Who is going to rescue me from this life that is bound to death? Um, I, need, I need a couple of volunteers. Uh, Sean, where are you at? Smart, where are you at? Smarty, come on up here. And then Brandon, are you in the room? Okay, can I borrow both of you guys here real quick? It's going to get a little awkward for the next couple of moments, okay? But it's okay. It'll be fine. Come on. Get up here. Move. Come on. I got a clock counting down here, okay? I only have a little bit of time to preach here. All right. So Paul makes a statement. He says, who's going to rescue me from this life that is bound to death? Now, uh, Roman, Romans were very good at creating new ways to torture people. Uh, they were very good at making sure that you paid for your crimes. They invented stuff like the crucifixion. They invented uh, human candle practice where they would literally dip humans in wax and light them on fire uh, to pay for, for, for their crimes. Uh, they invented a lot of ways to torture folks by feeding them to lions and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But there was one practice reserved for murderers that I don't even think would make it into the most disturbing horror movie you've ever seen. And I want to explain that to you this morning, not to freak you out and make things weird in church, but just so you understand what Paul is saying in this scripture. It was a practice known as being bound to death. And it was only reserved for murderers. So, um, Sean, I want you to murder Brandon real quick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no, uh, here's, here's what it was like. Let's pretend that Sean was a murderer. No offense. And uh, Brandon was his victim. Good, great, Okay. Nailed it. Good job. Well, if Brandon's body could be located and Sean was convicted of murder, then what the Romans would do is they would take the murder victim and they would literally bind the victim's body to the murderer. Uh, Disturbing, right? But depending on how brutal the murder was, they would literally bind the murderer to his victim face to face. Good. Lips to, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> face to face, chest to chest, torso to torso. They would tie them together and they would allow the murderer to spend the rest of his days emaciated, dying from starvation, 
bound to the victim. Now, if it wasn't that brutal, they would allow the murderer to not have to take the guy face to face, but rather back to back. And we'll go this route just so that it stays appropriate in church, okay? So if you guys could lock your arms there. There you go. Now, I want you to bend over because you're going to have to bear Brandon's weight here, all right? Okay. I want you to imagine this for a moment. For the rest of your days, you are forced to carry literally the weight of your crime. You are forced to every day be reminded of the guilt, the shame, the memory of that moment that you took somebody else's life. This is what the rest of your existence looks like. Thank you. You guys can take your seat. Awkward. Okay, good. Horrific practice, right? But the purpose of it was to remind the murderer, this is what you did. Look at what you did. Face to face, arm to arm, torso to torso. I want you to spend the rest of your days looking into that dead corpse so that you remember what you did. The constant memory of your crime. And Paul says in this scripture, is there anybody who can rescue me from this life that is bound to death? He draws this spiritual symbolism between a torture practice and the experience of humanity. He said, sometimes it feels like I am bound to the things I used to do. There is a constant memory, guilt, and shame of my past, of the things that I've done, the things that I regret. It seems like I can't break free of it. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that situation before, but I can tell you there's times where I've begun to pray and for some reason a, flea, a memory of something floods in that I did a week ago or two weeks ago and immediately I feel inadequate and I feel like I can't cry out to God. Maybe somebody says something and they remind me of my past and the person I used to be and once again it feels like I'm being bound to this dead thing that wants to cling on to me. But listen, if you are there today and guilt and shame is crippling you and you feel like you are bearing the weight of your own sin, I have the answer for you. And the answer is in Jesus Christ, your Lord. How's that? Well, well Romans 7 is wedged right between Romans 6 and Romans 8. I know. Oh, what a great, yeah. You're so smart. Now, let me remind you today that the, the Apostle Paul did not write chapters and verses into these scriptures. This was one big long letter that he wrote to the, to the Romans. And if you go from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 8, you will find this common thread that Paul weaves throughout this entire conversation. Romans chapter 6 starts out like this. What then shall we say? Shall we continue to sin so that God's grace can abound all the more? Certainly not. Since you have died to sin, how can you continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when you joined Christ Jesus in baptism, you joined him in his death? And when you were baptized, you put to death the old sinful nature in the waters of baptism. Quite literally, what he's saying is, hey, there was a moment where that corpse that used to try to hang on to you was buried in the bottom of a baptism tank, and just as Jesus died but resurrected to new life, you put to death that old man and you came up a brand new creation, and there is no corpse hanging on to you any longer. A proper burial has already taken place. And then, fast forward after 7, he says in chapter 8, verse 1, and because of this, 
There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I can live for the high call of God. Come on, how many grateful today that you are not condemned, that you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin, but that the old man has been buried. And let me, let me say it like this. In, in Colossians chapter 2, uh, the apostle Paul writes virtually the same thing. He says, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Bound to death. Cut away. The cords that tied you together were cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all your sin. Just as I would want you to remember that moment where you said yes to Jesus, if you're here today and you have been baptized in water, I want to remind you that you already buried that dead thing that's been trying to hold on to you. You do not have to be bound to guilt and shame and yesterday's regrets any longer. But you can remind yourself, no, I remember the ceremony. I remember the funeral. That thing was put to death and it was cut away and I was resurrected to new life in Jesus. This is why here at the Father's house, we put such a high price tag on baptism. I know you didn't see it today, but usually during every weekend experience, there is somebody in our atrium who gets baptized in water and we feed it and pipe it into these screens. This is the reason that at the end of every service when people give their life to Jesus, we're like, hey, your next step is to be water baptized. Why? Because there is something that needs to be cut away from your life once and for all, and it does not happen but in the waters of baptism. Let me, let me take a moment and just dispel some myths out there. Baptism is not something you do when you have figured out Christianity long enough to feel like you qualify for baptism. The Bible says, repent and then be baptized. Why would you spend another day with a corpse hanging onto your body if in one moment you can be set free from that thing and empowered to live for Jesus Christ? This is not something we wait on. This is something we immediately do because of the spiritual significance and the supernatural power of what takes place in the waters of baptism. I have so many conversations with people who, who, who are like, I want to avoid that. It's a little weird, you know. I don't want to take a bath in front of a bunch of people. Like, that's awkward, you know. And I get it. I mean, it, here at the church, it might be intimidating. You're like, I don't want to tell my story in front of all these people. Fine, don't tell your story. We'll read it for you. Or we'll just say, hey, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll dip you in water. Like, that's fine. There's, we're not dogmatic and, you know, you have to do it this way here. I don't care how you do it. Go to the ocean and do it for all I care. Like, I just want you to be baptized in water so you can experience the freedom that is available to you in Jesus. And one more thought while I'm on a rant. Um, baptism is something that we do after we make a decision consciously to follow Jesus. I'm not here to discredit anything and, and, you know, make you question your experience in life. But, man, if you were like six months old and someone baptized you and you were sprinkled with some water, that is not what the Bible teaches. That was not a conscious decision of yours to follow Jesus. It says repent and then be baptized. In other words, make a decision for yourself to follow Jesus, to turn away from your old life and to turn towards him and then be baptized. I would strongly encourage anybody in the room who has not been water baptized at the time that they made a decision for Jesus, please do not wait for it any longer. Do not live with unnecessary dead weight on your back. Just cut that thing free and live for Jesus. Amen? You have buried death. Last one, number three, and the band can come with this. You do love God. You do love God. I know that that sounds like a random thing to say, 
But here's what Paul says in the middle of this whole dramatic scripture. After I'm a slave, I can't figure this thing out, the things I want to do, can't do, things that are good, I don't do, things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. But when I do what I don't want to do, it is not be doing it, it is sin living in me that does it. Discovered this principle of life. What I want to do is right. I inevitably do what is wrong. And then he makes this statement. He says, but I love God. Like, I, I actually love God. And yet I still seem to do the wrong thing. If I could grab every face in this room and I could stare you into the eyes, the same way I tell my kids, I would tell every single person in this room, hey, listen, just because you do bad things sometimes does not mean you're bad. Just because you blew it does not mean that you don't love God or that God doesn't love you. You do love God. Let me say it like this. Your occasional inability to serve God does not mean that you don't love God. It means that you're human. Welcome to humanity. There ain't a single person in this room that's perfect. If you're looking for that church, I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist, but you can spend the rest of your life trying to find one because this ain't it. You're surrounded by a bunch of messed up people that honestly do the wrong thing all the time. But we come back to the same cross. Jesus, oops, I did it again. And we say we're sorry and we love Jesus again. That was kind of in tune too. That was awesome. I have a future. Robin and I uh, will celebrate 15 years of marriage next year, which is shocking, I know. We just, we look so young. Um, shut up. Uh, and uh, I remember uh, at Empire Mines in 2004, uh, standing across from an altar from her and giving the vows that all of us give uh, at our wedding ceremony. I promise to love you. I promise to cherish you in sickness and in health whether we're balling or we're broke, like we're for each other. That's a different version. Anyway. <laughs> um, but you know, in the exchange of vows, never once did I say to my wife, I promise I'm never going to hurt you. I promise I'm never going to do the wrong thing. I promise I'm never going to disappoint you. You know why? Because those are impossible promises to keep. It's impossible to do the right thing every single day. It's impossible to do things that on occasion won't make you feel like maybe you hurt God a little bit. But do you know that in 15 years, my wife has never questioned whether or not I love her, right? Okay, I should have asked you that first, sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, good. Never. Why? Because even when my actions sometimes speak louder than my words and I do the wrong thing, the one whom I love knows that I love her. And listen, the lie of the enemy will get into your heart and get into your head if you're not careful and will convince you that when you do the wrong thing and when you blow it again and when you said, God, I'm never going to do it again, but you do it again, that that must mean you don't really love God enough. If I just loved God a little bit more, then I probably wouldn't do that. And if we, if we play that movie forward, we actually think that that's the same conversation heaven is having about us. That God's like, man, if they just love me more, they wouldn't be doing that. They clearly don't love me. Try harder, love me more. That is not how God works. And if you are here today and you think, gosh, 
if I just love God, I, I could do this. I have the answer for you. And the answer, yes, it is still Jesus Christ. Because if you're holding your own sin against you, I want to remind you today that he is not. It says in 1 Corinthians 13 that God's love keeps no record of your wrong. And if God is not keeping a record of your wrong, if he's not looking at your rap sheet, then for the love of God, can we please stop submitting our wrongs back to him and reminding him of things that he has already chosen to forget. It says in Isaiah that he has washed you and made you as white as snow. Psalm 103 says that he's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. And when he was nailed to a cross, he took the penalty once and for all for every dumb thing you've done that you're gonna do today and that you're gonna do tomorrow. So when we blow it, it does not mean that you do not love God. It simply means that you need to come back to the foot of the cross again and remind him, I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by your grace. And I thank you that you love me and I still love you. And I'm going to try a little bit harder tomorrow, but when I blow it then, I'm going to come back to the cross again. And every time I do it, I come back to the face of Jesus. And he doesn't reject me. He says, I know you love me. Come on, get up. Though a righteous person falls, they get back up. You do love God. Stop lying to yourself. Yeah, you're not there yet. Welcome to the team. We're all in process here. But your love is not to be brought into question. Hey, you are not a slave. You have buried death. And you do love God. And if we can be convinced of those truths, we can come to this place of experiential freedom in this life. We're like, thank God. Thank God today I have been set free because the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Come on. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.